What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. We're talking history today, tracing back the lineage of one of the world's most famous family dynasties, the Rothschilds. Here's our host, journalist and author Catherine Osler with more. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. I'm delighted to have with me the historian and journalist Natalie Livingston. Natalie began her career as a feature writer at the Daily Express and now contributes to Tatler, Harper's Bazaar, US Vogue, Elle, The Times and The Mail on Sunday. Her first book, The Mistresses of Clifton, was a fantastic read and a Sunday Times bestseller. It uh, told the story of the five extraordinary women who lived at Clifton House. And her new book is The Women of Rothschild, the untold story of the world's most famous dynasty. It is a glorious panoramic survey of 300 years of women in an incredible family. It's been described by the Daily Mail as a scintillating family saga, thrilling and moving, and by the Sunday Times as hugely entertaining, uh, a fascinating story, stylishly told. That's just two reviews. So you don't need to just take it from me about how, how wonderful this book is. Let's begin. Hello, Natalie. Hi, thank you very much for that glowing introduction. Oh, oh, pleasure. Well, Natalie, let me begin by asking you, there are some fantastic stories in here, there really are, but how did you come across this idea and these women? Yeah, so I just finished writing my first book, um, as you mentioned, The Mistresses of Clifton, and I really enjoyed writing about these woefully under-researched women. And it was something that I felt very passionately about. Um, and I was considering my next project, and we went out with our, I went out for lunch. In fact, you were at the lunch too, with our mutual friend, Andrew Roberts, and we were thinking about what I should do next. And Andrew Roberts said, what are the two things you're most interested in? And I said, I'm fascinated in the study of women, fascinated in Jewish history. And he brilliantly said, what about the Rothschild women? And I thought, okay, this, this has got potential. So the first thing I did was I picked up Hannah Rothschild's magnificent um, biography of her great aunt Nika called The Baroness. And that was just mind blowing for me. I thought, my goodness, what an incredible story. And then I went, I went to the library and I stumbled upon um, an essay written by Miriam Rothschild in 1994 called The First Members of the EEC. And in this essay, um, the author Miriam Rothschild, who I found was this incredible 20th century polymath, more of her later, 
um, I hoped, she spoke about her female ancestors. And she spoke about the fact that they were a parallel but separate little world. And this I found utterly intriguing. And I wanted to know what this parallel but separate little world was that I didn't know about. And all of a sudden, hundreds of years of history that I assumed I knew just kind of got blown out into the open and all these stories were there to be discovered. That's incredible. And just for context, the Rothschilds, as you so beautifully describe in your book, they've they have been described as the sort of first family of Judaism, as the sort of Jewish royal family, weren't they? They were a sort of incredibly sort of important, influential dynasty. So it, it really is extraordinary that, as you so beautifully tell us, half of their stories had never been told. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And in order to understand the, the root of, of this exclusion, you've got to go right back to the origins of the family. You've got to go to the cradle of the Rothschild dynasty, which is far from the grand houses and gilded lifestyles and marble hallways that one generally associates with the Rothschild family. The Rothschild family actually began in the dark and crowded Frankfurt ghetto, the Judengasse, which was a very narrow strip of lane along the city's northeastern fortifications. And the Jews were herded into that in 1462. Uh, by 1610, there were 3,000 people living in 200 houses. So it was incredibly tight. So by 1753, by the birth of, my, of the first matriarch, Gutler Schnapper, there were more than double that number of people, more than double 3,000 people crammed into these tiny houses on the same footprint. There wasn't enough space to make new buildings, so old, more structures were, were added onto existing buildings and these cantilevered, high-rise, really dark, quite um, precarious, unsafe buildings. And... Uh, the ghetto was practically an open sewer. Acrid fumes engulfed the street. It was incredibly unsanitary. Disease ran rife. And people who used to visit the ghetto, it became something of a curiosity for, <laughs> yeah, kind of, you know, that, that was part of the tour of Frankfurt. You went to see this spectacularly hideous Judengasse or Jews Lane. And a lot of the diaries and a lot of the chronicles of these visitors um, comment on how pale the Jews looked because there was really no light. They were completely ateliated. They were actually deprived of sunlight when the, the buildings were so tightly packed together, so densely, densely packed that there was absolutely no sunlight. And it was in these extraordinary deprived conditions that the Rothschild patriarch, Maya Amschel Rothschild, and the Rothschild matriarch, Gutel, this wonderful woman called Gutler Schnapper, came into being. And in seven. Gutler, you describe so vividly, I promise you, she haunts me in my <laughs> dream. She's like a character out of Dickens. I can just imagine her walking in the, into the room. She did become a character, didn't she? She was the she, inspiration. She did. She was um, a character in a Hans Christian Andersen um, fairy tale called A Picture Book Without Pictures, in which he talks about this house in the ghetto where an old woman sat um, pining for, for her sons. But Gutler and Maya Amschel Rothschild got married in 1777. Now, they were only one of 12 marriages that were, were allowed in the ghetto at the time. So it was quite a, an achievement even for a woman to get married. What, what um, do you mean by that? Why, why was it? 
at the, at the time in the ghetto, the Jews were governed by a very tight set of regulations called the Stetikite. Excuse my German if that's not um, but right. And those were instituted in 1372. And there were, they were a really severe penalizing set of laws in which the Jews had to pay exorbitant taxes. There was a curfew. When um, a Gentile, when a Jew encounters a Gentile in the street, uh, the Gentile was completely within his rights to, to say, Jew, do your duty, and the Jew would have to bow. Jews were not allowed to become citizens. It was a, the, the Shetikite were very, very oppressive. And this, this was the system of, of legal oppression that the Jews lived under. And one of the rules was that there were only to be 12 marriages per year in the ghetto. And Gutula and Meir Amschel were fortunate enough to be one of those 12. But the interesting thing is about Gutula Schnapper is that the Rothschilds is traditionally a male narrative. It's a male dynasty. It's about banking. But it was actually Gutula's dowry of 2,400 gulden that actually started Meir Amschel off, that actually started his business. So without that capital, it's unlikely that anything would have come. Of, of this fledgling banking business that Maya Amschel Rothschild wanted to set up. And if that wasn't enough, Gutler contributed in every sense to the business. She was a cashier, she was an archivist, she was a bookkeeper, she was incredibly efficient. At the same time, she was pregnant 19 times, 10 children, so 19, and it's absolutely, it's unfathomable. 10 children survived to infancy. So she was bringing up 10 children, five girls and five boys in this tiny, tiny house called the Grunshields. God knows how they all managed to find any kind of space. The, the responsibility of bringing up and educating the children and helping her husband run the banking business. So she was an utterly, utterly extraordinary character, indispensable to Maya Amschel Rothschild. So I think it must have come as a bitter blow in 1812 um, when Maya Amschel died um, just after the, the day after Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, where he'd been standing up and fasting in the synagogue all day and his will was read. And there was a codicil in the will in which the women of the family, including Gutla, were disinherited they were forbidden from taking part in the bank. They were forbidden from working in the bank. They were effectively disinherited. And with this crucial clause, Maya Amschel Rothschild had set the tone of the history of his female, of, of all the women who came after him in, in the family. He relegated them very much to second-class citizens and outsiders in the family into which they were born. It's fascinating, though, because he did that sort of legally, didn't he? But as you tell so well in your book, in, in another way, it didn't really work, did it? Because their influence, though uncredited, was enormous. Yes. I mean, it, it worked in a sense that the Rothschild women were very, it was, it was codified that they were outsiders. And there was this sense of, of absolute inferiority but it didn't work because Maya Amschel didn't really bank on, on the extraordinary characters who would emerge from his dynasty. So it was actually impossible for any of them to follow the rules because they were such outliers in their own respective ways. And extraordinary characters, they certainly are. And in writing The Women of Rothschild, you, of course, you had a whole gallery of women to choose from and you've chosen 
some extraordinary and varied women. How did you select who to put in and who to put out? Was that difficult choice or did they was it sort of obvious or no not at all I mean the Rothschild family is vast um and then I kind of made the decision pretty early on is that if if the story was going to have any narrative arc I would have to follow one branch of the family and it happened that one of Maya Amschel and Gutler's five daughters Henriette at the time of the 1812 will was unmarried and that that made her fate really hang in the balance. The only thing that Henriette could do for her future was to get married. And this threw Gutler and her five brothers into a state of huge distress. And it became this almost comedy of errors about who was going to marry Henriette. And there were numerous attempts to marry her off to one suitor to another. Henriette was very feisty and headstrong, and she managed to maneuver her way out to marrying these dreadful men who her mother and her brothers had decided that it was essential that that she marry and have children with. So eventually the decision was taken that Henriette had to be shipped off to London to be under the care of her brother Nathan and his wife, um, Hannah Barrett Cohen. So there was a kind of natural progression from the Frankfurt ghetto to the streets of London. And that's that's where the story kind of takes off is in the English branch of the family. Yes, yes. And then from then on, so Hannah, you mentioned Hannah there. She she has a very powerful impact herself, doesn't she, on on English history? Will you tell us a little yes. bit about Hannah? I was so lucky to actually discover Henriette and Hannah so early on because more incredible, dynamic women, I think it would be very difficult to find. And the interesting thing about Hannah, she was 15 years old when she met her husband, Nathan. He came over from the Frankfurt ghetto to do an apprenticeship for her father, Levi Barrett Cohen. And we're not sure if there was any kind of attraction at that time, but they stayed in touch over over the years. And then Hannah married Nathan and sent, went, moved to Manchester, and where um, the Rothschilds at the time were in the textile business. And she started to assist uh, Nathan with the business. And there's this lovely record of letters in which she's really becoming involved in, in the business. And I thought, God, this is really strange, because I thought the will of 1812 said that no woman must get involved. So I went along to the Rothschild archives in London, and I found this incredible wealth of information that showed just how integral Hannah became to the banking dynasty. I'll tell you a story. In the summer of 1830, Hannah was due to go to Paris to support her daughter, Chile, who was giving birth to her first child. And in the official records of the the, the traditional Rothschild narrative, Hannah goes to Paris, Hannah supports Chile to give birth, Hannah comes home. Actually, in this amazing bundle of letters, I found that the story, the the reality is quite different. Hannah goes to Paris in the summer of 1830. It's just after the July days. The regime of the Duc d'Orléans has been overthrown. And Hannah realizes this is a really prime climate for fortunes to be made and fortunes to be lost. So she makes her way to the head, head of the French banking house in the Rue d'Artois. And she sits there and she starts speculating in French government bonds. And she realizes she has this unbelievable 
interest and passion in high finance. And she starts buying and selling. And she realizes that she's got this unbelievable ability to predict long-term trends. And Nathan realizes this too. And he thinks, oh my goodness, I've almost got this I've almost got money's profit sitting in the banking house. And there are these amazing letters of Hannah writing to Nathan saying, be cool, dear Rothschild, don't sell just yet, things are going to change. So Hannah became this, this indispensable advisor to Nathan and her sons. So she'd be the sharpest, sharpest of hedges these days, wouldn't she? So, I mean, just, I mean, she was absolutely amazing. At, at the time, there was this kind of stereotype of, of the clueless woman called the doe in the city, um, with this kind of like clueless, wide-eyed woman who didn't understand finances. And Hannah was the polar opposite of that. She really had an acute awareness of it. So much so that when Chile showed signs of going into labour, Hannah was really reluctant to leave the banking house and she dragged herself away just in time for the birth of the grandchild, kissed the grandchild on the head and then ran back to the banking house because she'd found something that totally gripped her. And actually, when Nathan died, he added an addendum to his will in which he urged his sons and his brothers to ask for his mother's counsel in all matters financial. So within... Within a generation, the terms of uh, Maya Amschel's will had been subverted. But the sad thing is, none of that made it into the history books. None of that was part of the narrative because that that wasn't that wasn't how the family wished to represent themselves. Fascinating. So within the family, they all knew that the power was much more diversely spread out. Yes. We that that that's Hannah. Tell us about the other. There are some other amazing, many other amazing women. I mean, I think a couple of the most I- I- intriguing were the ones who had a sort of really contributed to Jewish culture or culture in general. Actually, didn't they? Louisa and Blanche. Will you? enlarge yeah. a little bit about those two, although we could select any number of them. Yeah, well, I mean, the amazing thing about these women is that whatever sector of society you look at, be it science, be it art, be it music, be it sport, be it politics, there is a Rothschild woman who who blazed the trail. And just discovering them was an absolute joy. I guess one of the most exciting and fascinating stories uh, that, that, I, that I read about was the story of Louisa de Rothschild. Louisa was the daughter of this the feisty, headstrong Henriette who was shipped over from the Frankfurt ghetto to London by her mother. And she was very, very different from her mother. She could not have been more diametrically opposed. She was a very self-searching, self-doubting woman. She lacked a lot of confidence, but she was passionate about reading. And at a time when Jewish women were almost entirely excluded from English language literary culture in the 1840s, Louisa, along with her sister, embarked on a publishing project to promote cultural and religious pride amongst English Jews that became known as the Cheap Jewish Library. And and this was this was an amazing thing, these 18 volume, 18 short stories. And it took them a decade to put together. But because of, of the way that things were for, for women, Louisa wasn't allowed to put her name to it. So she had to work alongside a rabbi called David Aaron de Sola, who became her mentor. And um, it, she produced these extraordinary pieces of work about Jewish culture, 
about about Jewish pride and about the Jewish religion. And she commissioned an incredible array of really brilliant female Jewish writers who would not have had a voice apart other than her. They're such original thinkers, aren't they? Yeah, totally. I mean, what an extraordinary idea. Absolutely extraordinary. And Louisa attempted to write, her sister wrote beautiful stories, and they discovered an amazing Portuguese, a Jewish writer called Grace Aguilar, who went on to write a, a seminal work about Jewish women called The Women of Israel. So this really was the, a kind of a, a scene where literary and, and, and creative endeavours could thrive. And it was all brought about because of Louisa. And yet, tragically, she was unable to put her name to it because it just wasn't the done thing for a woman to be a writer and an editor, let alone a Rothschild woman. Gosh, it's so sort of strange, isn't it? And sort mm. of limiting. And Blanche, Blanche set up the Grosvenor Gallery. Yes, Blanche is an amazing character. And I guess if there's one person who kind of embodies what the Rothschild, what a Rothschild woman is, it's Blanche. Because Blanche was a daughter of a very interesting uh, woman, the daughter of Hannah, annoyingly and confusingly called Hannah Meyer, who was the first Rothschild to convert. So she converted to Christianity. So Blanche was the product of an apostate. She was, she was the product of someone who had the first Rothschild who had converted to Christianity. So she was an outsider. So she was born, she, she never found her place in, in her family, in society. She wasn't quite Jewish. She wasn't quite Christian, but she was an incredibly talented painter. And uh, she married an aristocrat called Coots Lindsay. And together they decided that they were going to shake up the way that um, art was, the, the whole art scene um, in London at the time. And they were looking around the Royal Academy and they were looking at the way in which paintings were hung. And at the time, um, paint, paintings in the Royal Academy were hung very tightly, very close next to each other and even on the ceiling. And it was really impossible to actually get a sense of what these paintings were about. So Blanche decided that she was going to hang the painting. She wanted paintings to be hung in a much more modern way. She wanted art to be seen in a much more modern way. So she funded and founded the Grosvenor Gallery, which became this incredibly just exciting, wonderful place that drew all of the artistic the, the condescenti of the time. Anyone who was anyone visited the Grosvenor Gallery. Did they and give the pictures more space? Yes, they gave the... Yeah, 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 exactly. She decided that she wanted to give the pictures more space. And um, that kind of gave each artist their own story and it gave more integrity to the, to the painters. And the other thing that she did that was absolutely brilliant is she started this uh, thing called the Sunday Salons. And it was just an at home at the Grosvenor Gallery uh, where Blanche would talk about the works of, of her favourite artists. And they had an amazing cast of characters come. I mean, they had the Prince of Wales, they had George Eliot. They, they had amazing writers and amazing painters and amazing thinkers come to these um, open house events. So she really was quite trailblazing for the time. And bizarrely, I hadn't heard of her. No, I had neither. So they're so trailblazing and they're trailblazing in politics as well, aren't they? They have this great talent for sort of seeing how things might be and reshaping history, really, don't they, properly? So 
Can can we go on to these uh, the amazing story of the Rothschild women in the Balfour Declaration? And perhaps we'll explain. I'm sure everybody knows, but just in case somebody, anyone doesn't or has forgotten what, what the Balfour Declaration was and how what their involvement was. Sure. So the Balfour Declaration was a piece of paper that, that was issued in 1917 in which the British government pledged their support to a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And just to kind of go back a couple of centuries in, to your point about, um, you know, the Rothschild women in politics, the amazing thing is, is that Roth, the Rothschild women, starting from Hannah, going on to her daughter and daughter-in-law Charlotte, had this extraordinary political sensibility. They realized that in order for Jews to have representation in the country, in order for Jews to have respect as a way of fighting anti-Semitism and prejudice, it was essential that Jews were able to be represented in parliament. So that was a journey that was pioneered by Rothschild women, that it's often that they are left out of the story for. So it's it's a it's a long-standing journey. With the Balfour Declaration in particular, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing story because the Balfour Declaration is indelibly associated with the name of its recipient, Walter Rothschild. And in fact, you, you and I run the Cliveden Literary Festival. And I remember in, in the first year, we did an event celebrating 100 years of the Balfour Declaration. And we, we distributed copies of the Balfour Declaration so everyone could read it. And it said, Dear Lord Rothschild. And at no point in that session did I question its recipient. And only when I was going, when I was in the archives in Wadston and researching one of the later 20th century, one of the later Rothschilds, this amazing Hungarian woman called Rosika, did I discover that Rosika was the first person to introduce a Rothschild family to Chaim Weizmann, who was the father of Zionism. It was Rosika who persuaded the family to listen to Chaim Weizmann. And she, she, for 18 months, she mounted this unbelievable campaign to try and lobby not only the members of her family who were cynical and undecided about Zionism, but also the British political elites who were quite sceptical of this, of this chemist from Manchester, Chaim Weizmann, who had a very kind of rough and ready way of speaking. And she managed to marshal him and to, to mould him into this really astute and articulate political activist. They and remoulded him into something acceptable, didn't they? Acceptable the, the for British elite. The, the British political elite. So much so that our, our friend, Nancy Astor, described Chaim Weizmann as the only decent Jew she'd ever met. So, um, uh, yeah, the, Rizika obviously did an outstanding job. But the amazing thing about all of this is that Rizika was working behind the scenes for 18 months. And it was only at the end of 1916 that Walter Rothschild, her brother-in-law, even became involved in it. And Walter Rothschild wasn't a Zionist. He was a zoologist. He was famed for riding his zebra to Buckingham Palace and his and his enormous flea and insect collection. You know, he was he he wasn't a politician. Rizika was a politician of the family, and yet her contribution has just been airbrushed out of the picture. And it was so thrilling to be able to really get into her character and really understand the workings of this amazing political mind that that has just been 
left to to get to gather dust in the archives. It's fascinating. So it's fascinating on many levels, this. One, why she was so convinced herself that it was a good idea when the rest of her family weren't. And then secondly, her personal qualities, which meant she had the sort of stamina and the persuasive skills to take this, even as a woman who mm. nobody was that interested in, to take it so far. What What was it about her that made her... A, care and B, successful in her mission. I mean, Razika definitely merits a biography of her own. Absolutely amazing. This kind of rakish Hungarian figure who married relatively late in life. She married Charles Rothschild, who was the, the second son of Lord Rothschild. And they met on a butterflying, um, butterfly hunting trip in the Carpathian Mountains. And Razika was truly amazing. She was very, very sporty. As she brought the over the overarm served Hungarian women's tennis and used that to win the national championships. And she was very independent. She was obsessed with Proust. She was incredibly literary. She, she met Charles, fell in love with Charles, moved to England on the eve of the Second World War and settled into a foreign country where it wasn't her mother language. And she also had to settle into a family. And I don't think the Rothschilds were a particularly easy family to settle into. I mean, eccentric doesn't even come to it. And not only that, unfortunately, her husband, Charles, suffered terribly from mental illness. So Razika had a lot to contend with, but she was an amazingly astute political observer. And when the letter from Heim Weitzman arrived, landed on her doorstep, and after her first meeting with Heim Weitzman, she wrote to her cousin, Dolly, she said, I love fanatics and idealists and Chaim Weitzman is both. And I think that was the appeal for Azika. It was the fact that Chaim Weitzman had this dream and was so driven and, and had this extraordinary vision. And Razika was so forward thinking that she understood that this was the only future that that uh, for, 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 for the Jewish nation. So when it, most most people in her family were just content to be British Jews, she understood that how essential Zionism was and how important the foundation of the state of Israel was for the Jewish people. Fascinating. I mean, the sheer sort of far-sightedness and the drive, you know, as you say, of her alone is, is, yeah. is gripping and she's just sort of one of many. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So we have so many of these brilliant women. Do, do you have a favourite? 
did you, you must have felt, I felt that when, as you wrote the book, you wrote it with such intelligence, but also such heart. I felt you were putting yourself in the shoes of them. So you must have begun to feel their, sort of their journeys, because they have real highs and they have real lows, don't they? But did you, first of all, I just want to know, did you feel particularly impressed or moved by any of them in particular? I mean, I, no, but I would not. Yeah, exactly. I would say that. I mean, I, Honestly, each of the women in, in their respective ways was incredibly moving and, and in, absolutely fascinating. Um, would I have wanted to walk in their shoes? No, I think their shoes were really uncomfortable. I think, you know, the weight of the Rothschild name really bore down upon them in, in many respects. I've got to say, as I, as I reached the 20th century, I fell more and more passionately in love with the women, maybe just because I could relate to, to their, you know, to them more. But um, Rosika had three daughters, Miriam, Nika and Liberty. And if I had to pick a character who I was completely spellbound by, I think it, it has to be Miriam. You know, I, I mentioned her at the, at the beginning. She was a true polymath. I mean, there's it's, it's impossible to describe her. She was known as the Queen of Fleas. She was obsessed, obsessed with fleas. She discovered the mechanism by which the flea jumps. That, that was her original contribution to, to entomology. And a, a journalist who, who interviewed her for the Times in 1999 said it's impossible to prepare for a meeting with Miriam Rothschild. Just imagine, imagine Beatrix Potter and amphetamines and you become close. I mean, this was this was a person who was just so intellectually curious. So she was fascinated by fleas. She was a self-taught scientist. I was going to say I was fascinated, but she's not conventionally educated. She's got no, a not Da at Vinci all. type power of observation. Exactly, because even in the twentieth century. Uh, female Rothschilds were not afforded the same educational benefits that their male counterparts were. So Miriam wasn't educated formally in science, but she took herself off to Polytechnic and she taught herself everything that she knew. And she became a world-renowned scientist. I mean, she got eight honorary doctorates by the end of her career. But science wasn't enough for her. Um, Miriam was a precocious environmentalist. You know, I always kind of think, you know, before Stella McCartney, there was Miriam Rothschild. She refused She refused to wear leather. She wouldn't eat meat. She had these traditional Wellington boots, which were her trademark item of clothing. There's these pl white plastic Wellington boots that she wore everywhere, even to Buckingham Palace. She, yeah, I mean, ex extraordinary. She really didn't care about what anyone else thought. She just was so loyal to, to her principles. She was also an active campaigner um, for mental health. Miriam's sister, well, Miriam's father, yes, had suffered terribly from mental illness. Her father, Charles, actually killed himself in 1923. And unfortunately, Charles's daughter, Liberty, and Miriam's sister suffered really, really badly from schizophrenia. And at the time, mental illness was treated in an extraordinarily barbaric way. I mean, patients were subjected to huge, huge doses of insulin until it induced an epileptic seizure they were given lobotomies. And it's highly likely that Dr. Freudenberg, who was Liberty's doctor, did administer these, these treatments on Liberty. And she was also put in, into an asylum. But Miriam wouldn't have that. She was absolutely determined that 
going to take her sister out of an asylum. And she brought her home and she cared for her at home. And this was very, very unusual for the time because it was just not, it was not the done thing. And she was a pioneer when it came to that. But Miriam was very inclusive in the way that that she handled issues. So it wasn't enough for her to help a member of her family uh, to ameliorate their circumstances. She also wanted to ameliorate the circumstances of all people who were suffering from schizophrenia. So she used a lot of her scientific knowledge to set up the Schizophrenia Research Foundation. And the premise of, of it was to treat mental illness in the same way that physical illness was treated in. And Miriam was absolutely at the vanguard of that, which is, you know, yeah, absolutely incredible, decades ahead of her time. And if that wasn't enough, she helped contribute to writing the Wolfenden Report, which was the document in which homosexuality was decriminalized. So there's really very little that Miriam didn't do. How did she get involved with Miriam had this amazing ability to get involved with all of the live issues of her day. And because she was a scientist, she was she was fascinated in the behavior of mammals. So she was called upon to kind of look at this in a, you know, look, look at homosexuality in a very kind of you known scientific from a scientific point of view. And she wrote this paper, which was very, very ahead of her time. Um, and said, you know, this is this is a this is natural at a time when it wasn't considered natural. Tragically, wow. I mean, it's 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 so interesting, and we, and we could, you know, there's so much more we could cover. I'm I think we should probably go on to questions now. So, question one: The Rothschild women made friendships with the many great men of their day: Thackeray, Duke of Wellington, Gladstone. Do you put this down to their money, their charm? their intelligence or all three? Of course, we could put Disraeli in there. Well, that's a good question. I think, um, yeah, it's a great question. I think the reality is there was a mix of everything. There were there were some elements, for example, Charlotte Rothschild, who was um, the wife of Lionel Rothschild and Hannah, Hannah's daughter-in-law, had an extremely close friendship with Disraeli. So she was able to fund his political ambitions but uh, in but and then but he but she became a muse for him and his writing. So it was a very, it was a lovely it was a lovely relationship. Did Disraeli benefit from her generous hospitality? Of course, but I think you know their their adoration of each other went far deeper than the depths of of, of the Rothschilds' coffers. So I think you know there was there was a bit of everything. Okay, wonderful. The Rothschild women seem to have been unacknowledged by the men in the family for the contribution they made to the early success of the business. This is interesting. So is there any evidence that they resented this? Well, again, that's an amazing question. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the, the reaction, the woman whose reaction I would have loved to have found out about was Gutela, because I can't imagine how furious she must have been when she read this will and thought, oh my goodness, after everything I've done, my daughters have been have been written out of the will. But but seriously, yes, there are there are lots of letters from Hannah and from Charlotte uh, in which they really were terribly upset about their second class citizen status and terribly upset about the fact that they were outsiders. 
For example, every few years, a family would convene in Frankfurt and the men of the family would go off to this place in, in, um, in one of the brothers, Amschel's house called the Tower to discuss the future of the bank. And Hannah was just left out. So, you know, what? this is a woman who had an unbelievable talent for finance and was really passionate about it. And yet when it came to these kind of board meetings between the brothers, she wasn't allowed in because because she was a woman. It was a succession, the extremely sexist version, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Is, there are shades of succession. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> there is evidence there. How, here's an interesting one, and I know you'll have an answer to this. How have the present day Rothschilds reacted to your book? Oh, well, that's another amazing question. I mean, luckily, I've been extremely fortunate to have the support of Hannah Rothschild, who has been amazing. She was so kind and so supportive to me when I first had the idea of the project. And and she couldn't have been any more wonderful. And uh, her father, Jacob, has been extraordinary as well. So I've been very, very lucky that that the family has been very supportive. Did any of the Rothschild women take a stance against the outcome of the Balfour Declaration and and the ethnic cleansing the Palestinians had ensued, or did they all toe the family line despite the atrocities that followed, asks someone. So did did they all agree with the Balfour Declaration or did anyone sort of... No, absolutely not. I mean, the family was really torn in two about the Balfour Declaration. Um, There was a sense that, and this is 1917, I think, before the the incidents that that, um, are being referred to, but there there were two separate camps in the family. One felt we are English Jews. We've worked so hard to become accepted in the establishment. Why on earth would we want to be nationals of another country? Why on earth would we want to sacrifice all the wonderful English culture and all the English customs that we've embraced and the fact that we've been embraced in order to to become Zionists? So yes, there was this, this big split. So and actually, that there was a lot of disagreement. And, and I don't think there was ever a full consensus about whether they were, as the, as Rosika would say, Wisemanites. And did they fall out over it? I mean, was it a proper sort of ruptures over it in a sort of Brexit style family division? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are actually quite funny letters that Rosika wrote to Dolly. Uh, there was one of her cousins was called Marie, and Marie was staunchly anti-Zionist. And they were at lunch together in 1916. And uh, uh, Rosika wrote to Dolly, oh my goodness, I was completely attacked by Marie in the most savage way. And she didn't stop going on and on and on at me. And she was absolutely furious because this, you know, she felt that Rosika felt it was impolite to defend herself. So yeah, there were there were huge uh, ruptures and ruptures in the family about the, the Balfour Declaration. In fact, especially the women, because it was actually the women who were more politi- politically active than the men. The men because the men were so obsessed with, with the bank, um, do you think? They were so caught up yeah. with the finance that the women were thinking... Yes, well, yeah, exactly. Like the men were, were obsessed with the bank. But also this is in the middle of the First World War. So a lot of the men had been sent away to fight. So the women were left and they were able to really 
um, manifest and develop these political views. Right. Which takes us neatly onto the next question, actually. Lisa Sears asks, were any Rothschild women involved in the suffrage movement? That's, a, again, another amazing question. I mean, the interesting thing about being a Rothschild and being a woman and women having the vote is that Rothschilds were, they were upper class. They were part of the plutocracy. They had a huge amount of money. So would it have, there were very few Rothschilds actually who, who actually put their weight behind the suffragette movement because actually it wasn't really in their interest. And the closest that any of the Rothschild women came to it was Constance Rothschild, who became the president of the National Union of Working Women. But there aren't very many recordings in her diary about her desire to support the suffragettes. The only thing that speaks volumes about how she felt about voting was on the first day that she could vote was she just wrote what there was just one one word in her diary, voted exclamation mark. So, you know, she was thrilled that she was that she won the right to vote, but it wasn't a fight that many of them chose to embark on. Interesting. Yeah. She's another person with an intriguing line yes. in her own yeah. right, isn't she? And her another one here, on to another one, is is can you tell us about Nika and her association with the great jazz musicians of the 20th century. Yeah, I can. How long do we have? Well, Nika was Miriam's sister and um, Razika's daughter, and she became known as the Jazz Baroness. Her, her story is quite amazing. Up until the eve of her 40th birthday, Nika was following the traditional conventional trajectory of a Rothschild woman. She married an aristocrat called Jules to Coningswater. They had four children. Then on the eve of her 40th birthday, she heard a record from a jazz musician called Theolonius Monk. And it kind of had this hypnotic effect on her. She listened to it and listened to it, listened to it. And there was something in her that she knew. It was like this kind of crazy calling. She knew she had to meet Theolonius Monk. So she went over to Paris and she met Theolonius. And it was this kind of explosion that happened in her and she just knew that she couldn't go back to her life. So she upped, she left her kids, she left her husband, she moved to New York and she basically became the patron saint of the bebop movement. Of And there were so many jazz musicians, Charlie Parker, the Alonious Monk, whose career she she made, I mean, she, you know, whatever they needed, whatever they wanted, if they were drunk and stoned at three o'clock in the morning, they would just telephone Nika in her hotel room and she sent her Rolls Royce to come and to come and get them. If if they were having a really hard time emotionally, they would go and stay in her in one of her hotel rooms, which was known for being a real kind of den of raucous iniquity. So we're, we're back to question one here. Is this charm, intelligence, money, sensitivity, character? What what is it? What what the, I, she was drawn to them, but they're drawn to her because she supports them, looks after them. Yeah, I mean, I think the fortunate thing for Nika is that she had the funds to support her passion, and that's and that's was well unique at the time. So she was really able not only to understand these musicians. I mean, Theolonius Monk suffered very very badly from manic depression, and Nika was very sensitive to that and did almost anything she could 
to, to help him, whatever remedies. Because of her father? Because Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that there was this sense with Mika that, that she was always trying to save her father. I think with both Miriam and Mika, that their, their careers were a kind of a subconscious attempt to save their father. Miriam inherited her love of insects from her father. Nika inherited her love of jazz from her father. And the Elonious Monk almost became the embodiment of her of her father. And if there was a soundtrack to Nika's life, it would have been called Saving Theolonius, because that was what she dedicated the rest of her life to doing. I mean, she even went to jail for him. So she, it was it was a true love. It was it's a true very passion. moving, isn't it? These yeah. sisters taking two sides of this man and trying to sort of, I don't know. And the, the impact he had. Yeah. Memphis Holland says, how do the Rothschild women inform this and future generations about how to take our place in society? Surely not to continue to allow second class status. Well, that's interesting too. So what, what, what do we think that we can learn from them? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's so much to learn from them. I mean, what, what is fascinating is the individual stories and their individual struggles and the, the way in which they negotiated and navigated their, their trail. I think that they did whatever they could to try and maximise on, on their experience and to try and do as much as they possibly could within the confines of the family and within the confines of society at the time. I mean, Miriam Rothschild in her original essay says, you know, the thing about her her ancestors, there were no, that there wasn't a rebellious streak. They weren't outright rebels, but what they did was change society and change views and challenge preconceptions subtly and slowly and with a huge amount of grace. And I think that that's something that I, I commented on. You don't always have to shout the loudest. You don't always have to make the most noise in order to have the longest running impact. Mm-hmm. Karen Miscow says, do you think that without the women, the Rothschilds would have done well as they have done? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I mean, to be honest, without the women, the Rothschilds are a very, very, very wealthy back. And the women gave so much, the literature, the culture, the art, the science of sport, the, the, the political savoir-faire. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what the family would, would be like without the contribution of these unbelievable women. But, but I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> okay, great. Here's one. How did the Rothschilds balance? Well, this is the great sort of question of the Jewish families at the time, isn't it? How did they balance their wish to assimilate into English society with the need to protect the Jewish identity of the family? Yeah. Oh, God, that's a great question. Yeah. I think you just need to take an example. So, Hannah Baron Cohen, Nathan's wife, the, she had an amazing way of, of marrying those two aspects of who the family were. And she was extremely accultured. So while she had one foot very, very firmly in the camp of teaching her children about Jewish values, teaching her children Jewish history and and educating them in all in, in the traditions of their family. She also made sure that she educated them in the ways of the British upper class. 
and that they were able to move seamlessly from, from one world to another. A part of that was this kind of unwritten rule that they that they had to marry within the family so that that would continue the Jewish religion. And preferably, they would marry in the family. So only a Rothschild would be worthy of a Rothschild. So that was one of the ways in which the family was kind of kept together. But actually, I would say, well, I think it worked to an extent, but I mean, it didn't it, for a couple of generations when Rothschilds intermarried, you know, married cousins and nieces. But um, it, it wasn't. It's an, it was an amazing new word I learned: endogamy. I didn't know that before. But these but these are endogamous matches. I mean, they seem absolutely hideous to us now. But at the time, they were just seen as being really important to maintaining the integrity of the family and the business. And it's unbelievable to think of making that sacrifice now. But that was very much um, part of the duties of, of being a Rothschild. Just got a couple more sneaking in under the wire very quickly. Changing the sub- subject slightly, someone says, is the which Jewish women alive today do you most admire? Oh, Okay, I, I'm going to say something really like nauseating and sucky uppy. I've got to say that Hannah Rothschild and everything that she's done, I find truly, truly inspiring. And I look at, she, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Memphis Holland, thank you for a vibrant discussion with great Q&A. I look forward to reading the book and diving into the individual stories. Lovely. And Orna Sayak, last question, says, how important is the wine business? But that's the French Rothschilds, right? Yeah, well, that's that's the French Rothschilds. I mean, like the, you know, the thing is, if any if any of the French, French Rothschilds want to invite me to one of their vineyards, like, I'm I'm up for it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, 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 yeah, I'm very happy to test that out. Absolutely, <laughs> Natalie. Thank you so much. That was oh, absolutely marvelous. I think we can all agree that was really wonderful. And thank you to our audience and their absolutely brilliant questions, and to the glorious Intelligence Squared for hosting us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.